How's that? Acts chapter 25, verse 22, through Acts chapter 26, verse 23. Let's pray. Lord, let us this morning sit and wait upon you. As you serve us, your holy gospel, the word of God. We're hopeless without the work of your Holy Spirit. Giving us ears to hear and eyes to see. We long all the more to experience joy in you. So to that end, cause me to be faithful and confident in the word to proclaim it, to say it, to be clear with it. Thank you. Amen. Do you know the Lord? That's the question. I want hanging over the rest of this sermon. Do you know the Lord? I didn't ask, do you know about the Lord, or do you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches, and you can give it back to me. I didn't ask if you asked Jesus into your heart, or whether you have been baptized. I asked, do you know the Lord? The way Jesus meant it, hours before his crucifixion, when he prayed in the presence of his apostles, Tell him, Father, you have given to me, Jesus, the authority to give eternal life, which is more than just living forever. It is life in them. You've given me authority to give eternal life to every person whom you have given to me. And then he said these words in verse 3 of John chapter 17 and this is eternal life that they may know you not merely know about you they'll know you and they will know me your son Jesus Christ do you know him not just about him. Knowledge of something in anything without taking the knowledge and applying it to your life doesn't do any good. You, you can get the report from the doctor. I certainly have. You're pre-diabetic. Uh-oh. 
You need to lose weight. Getting older, it's unhealthy. And do what I did. I read a book. And then you can be four or five months down the road and say, I don't get it. Now I'm diabetic. My weight is still very unhealthy. I read the book. Yeah, but it, you didn't do the book. You got to apply it. Knowledge of salvation in Jesus is of no use if you don't apply it. So the question is, is the application of the gospel of Jesus impacting your life, your actions, your living? Is a real relationship with the Lord Jesus evident in your life. That's what Jesus was driving at when he said in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me Jesus. Lord. Lord. Will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that future day many many will say to me. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Paul this morning in this passage as he recounts his life, his change, and his ministry over the last 23, 24 years, he is telling them clearly that he preaches the good news, the great news of the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. And he preaches forgiveness of sins through him. And he preaches in this passage the demand that one must apply that message through repentance. In verse 20 of chapter 26, Jesus says publicly to them, this is what I've been doing for the last few decades. I declare that they, Jews and Gentiles throughout the empire, as I go around evangelizing them, I declare that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repentance. Repentance, which is flowing from faith through a life that's being lived. That is the evidence of a person's salvation. So let's pick up. Where we left off last week, back in chapter 25, we'll begin with verse 22. We have King Agrippa, who's in town there in Caesarea, and the governor, Festus. And Festus has been telling Agrippa about the problem with this Paul guy that was left in jail when I took over a month ago. 
And so, verse 22, Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city of Caesarea. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner all the way to Rome before Caesar, not to indicate the indictment or the charges against him. And so now at this point, what Paul's going to do before all of these Roman dignitaries, he's going to evangelize them. And as he does, his message here is twofold. First, he will proclaim to them that Jesus from Nazareth is the one that the Jewish scriptures foretold and promised would come and would be raised from the dead. And he indeed was raised from the dead. It's the first part. And then the second part is, therefore, repentance from sin from darkness is the saving response to the resurrection of Jesus. 26 verse 1, read on. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews, because you're nominally Jewish. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And then Paul begins with his childhood and his upbringing. My manner of life from my youth, Spent from the beginning among my own nation in Cilicia, city of Tarsus, and here or in Jerusalem, it is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And then Paul appeals to the scriptures, the Old Testament. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God 
to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. What's the hope he's referring to? It's the next verse. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So in short, Paul just said, look, my fellow Pharisees and, and other Jews who, who say and proclaim they believe the Bible, they should surely in no way be shocked that the God who created the universe with a word could raise a dead man. Which leads Paul then into his own eyewitness testimony that that is in fact what God did with Jesus of Nazareth. And so Paul gives them the context of his own encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. Read on. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to non-Jewish foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. In midday, O King Agrippa, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's Paul's eyewitness account. He's only one of many apostles who had first-hand eyewitness testimonies of encountering the resurrected Lord Jesus. And in, in fact, from the New Testament, we know that there are at, at least 520 persons who were encountered by the resurrected Lord Jesus. Two things happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. One was external. And the other was internal. First, it was the blinding light that manifested 
to him and even to the other Christian-hating fellows with him that caused them all to fall to the ground. And the other thing that happened to him is that very same light of God shone in his heart. The Holy Spirit indwelt him. Changed him. He was born again. And the rest of Paul's life bore witness to that internal transformation. It's called repentance. It's called repentance that's driven by a new found love. It's called repentance, a turning away from that which in comparison to what I now see is so far inferior. Jump forward to verse 22 and 23 for a second. And so he says, to this day, the last almost 25 years, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said should come to pass. That the Messiah must suffer. And that by being the first, which means there's many more to come, by being the first human being to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people, the Jews, and to the Gentiles. In other words, he says that the historical Resurrection of Jesus and the eyewitness testimonies of many were fulfilling what the Hebrew scriptures clearly taught and promised. That's his gospel. Now, here's the big question. What of it? What of it? What difference should the fact of the resurrection of Jesus make? Or, or another way to frame the question is like this. What impact does Jesus' actual resurrection from the dead actually make upon all of those who are being saved? And the answer in this passage is repentance. Repentance is the proper response to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul did not just preach repentance for the last 25 years. 
But first and foremost, that carrier of the gospel of Christ and of repentance was brought by a vessel. Paul himself repented and repented and repented. He turned around. That's what repentance, metanoia, means. You're turning from where you were going. If you're on a freeway, and I've done this on a long distance trip to back from Texas once. What do we go, like 25 miles? I'm going the wrong way at 2 a.m. in the morning. And when you find it out, you get knowledge. That you, I see I'm going the wrong way. Repentance means you turn around. And for the rest of Paul's life, he did it an about face. Repentance is a turning. 180. Opposite direction. It is a turning of the whole person. Not just your thoughts. It is a turning of the whole person away from sinful patterns of living uninterruptedly. And a turning to a living toward God. Repentance involves a change of mind. By definition, it's part of what we are as human beings, of what we think, of how we see the world. It involves a change of mind and a change of will and a change of emotions that result in changes of behavior. Repentance is not separate from saving faith. It can never be separated from saving faith. It is distinct from the faith that saves, but never separated. It's the flip side of the same coin. Heads, tails, faith, repentance. So, let's contemplate repentance for a while. First and foremost here, not foremost, but first, repentance absolutely involves a change of thinking, a change in the intellect, a change of mind. Now, I want to say that same thing, but I want to say it the way that our passage this morning says it. It involves a change of mind or perspective, a change of mind from darkness to light. In verses 16 and 18, chapter 26, look at it. Jesus said to Paul, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you 
from your people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now listen very closely. Jesus says to him, I'm sending you, Paul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. That they may turn from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are separated or sanctified or set apart by faith in me, Jesus. And so, go Paul, so I'm sending first, yes, the intellect, the mind, part of repentance is it grasps something. You know, you, you, we say that many different ways as in human beings. And in every language we have ways to say, I, I get it. I see it. I hear you. However, it, 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 yes, we're saying, I'm comprehending. I'm, I know. My intellect is, it's active. That's what happens. But this change of mind or from darkness to light, this sight has nothing to do with your IQ. Whether it's very high, very normal, or low, has nothing to do with it. Apart from Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, all people, no matter how intellectually bright and gifted they are, they are darkened in their mind. In their understanding. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18. About those who are remaining non-Christians. Unbelievers. He says. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance. That is in them. Due to. The hardness. Of their heart. Paul says that. This way. In 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case. The God of this world. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has power to keep them blind. The believer 
who talks to them about Christ sees it. This person whom they're talking to are unable. They're blind because Satan blinds them so that they can't. Jesus says to Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. None of us in our natural state in which we're born into this world, in our falling condition, none of us can grasp None of us, in other words, can see. None of us can know the light of the glory and the beauty of Christ, who's the very image of God. None of us can see how delightful and beautiful the eternal one being actually is left to ourselves. Repentance, it is a change of mind, but it is so much more than that. Think about it. If you asked Paul the day before his experience on the road to Damascus, hey Paul, is God holy? His answer would be, absolutely God is holy. Of course he's holy. Read that all over the scripture. Yes, God is holy. He knew that. Only intellectually, though. But it was only when he saw the light. It was brighter than the noonday sun. And that very light penetrated his heart. And he saw with new eyes, only then did he realize he didn't know what he's talking about. Only then did he realize that God was infinitely more holy than he ever grasped. Before Christ shined the light of who God really is, Paul is a religious person. Boy, his self-esteem was through the, through the roof. As a religious person, he had great confidence in his own idea of who God is and of who he was. Before Christ shined that light, he believed that his own religious rituals, his own idea of good works, he believed all of that qualified him, unlike many other people, to dwell with God even after death, safely in heaven, in his presence. That's what he thought. He was sincere about it too. But the moment God's light struck him on that road and penetrated his heart, he had the Isaiah chapter 6 experience. You remember, God gives Isaiah a vision. I want you to come and I want you to see the throne room of God. 
changed him. Isaiah's response, woe, W-O-E, very, very, very bad news to me. Woe is me because I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Now just, isn't it great what goes on next? Let's put the coal on your tongue. I've dealt with your sin. Mercy is there. It's all taken care of now. You're mine. Your salvation. That was Paul. Like Isaiah, he saw his sinfulness in a way he never saw it. He saw it by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you ask Paul the day before, Paul, are you a sinner? course I'm a sinner we're all sinners oh but I'm not like I'm not a gentile sinner that's how what he actually said in Galatians when he's referring back to talking to Peter a perspective of what religion meant to him and how his good works put him in a good stead so he's not a sinner in that that sense but oh yeah of course I'm a sinner we all sin but God but God forgives. In fact, you know, I'm, I'm a Pharisee. I do really well. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to righteousness, my righteousness under the law of Moses, blameless. That was Paul the day before. And then by the Lord's grace, all of that religious deception came crashing down. This is probably the most important thing I'll say this morning. It all came crashing down by a new sight. New eyes. God gave him a new he was a new creature in Christ Jesus. What Paul said right after talking about Satan blinding the minds of unbelievers, like Paul himself, he says this about all of us who are no longer blind but have a new sight the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, for God who said, remember at the beginning of the book of Genesis, the creation narrative, who said, let light shine out of darkness. And when God says that, it cannot not shine. That God, He's the one who shone meaning shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus told Paul that day, Paul, 
I'm sending you because I bring that change through the preaching of the gospel. I am sending you to open their eyes. He doesn't mean, oh, Paul, go to city after city and get prayer lines going. And what I'm going to do is use your hands with my power. You lay your hands on it and then their eyes will be opened to see. That's not what Jesus means. He means you're going to go. And you're going to speak words in known languages about me, which is called the gospel. And through that, eyes will be opened by the Spirit. That's what Jesus means. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn. When that happens, they turn. That they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God. And that's the other thing repentance clearly means. It involves not just a move from spiritual darkness to light, but it always involves a change of masters from the power of Satan to the power of God. Every single person in the world is born a slave of Satan. None of us can break free from him. And as he wields the power of our own sinfulness against us. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that's the context now when the Jesus next says, So if the Son, me, Jesus, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 to those to whom the gospel has come and the experience of turning by the Spirit from darkness to light, the power of Satan to God. That's why he writes to them these words. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, you have become Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. For just as you once presented your members, your arms, your legs, your eyes, what you do and how you live with your body, in other words, just as once you presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness, breaking God's moral law without pause, which is leading even to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading 
to sanctification. This means that if a person has not experienced a change of masters, from Satan, from sin, from darkness, to light, to holiness, to God, if they have not experienced that, then all of their religious beliefs, even in Christianity, is probably not saving faith. When I was 13 years old, I made what is called in the denomination I grew up, a confirmation of my faith in Jesus. A big hoopla where the cardinal was even present. But for Joe LeMay, having done, I'm confirming my faith. I was still a slave of sin. I had not seen the light. I had not turned to God and Jesus was not my master. This biblical repentance that Paul's referring to, that repentance, it flows out of a change of relationship with God. It does not cause, repentance doesn't cause that relationship with God. It flows out of a change of relationship with God. A change meaning Paul and I had a relationship with God defined as condemnation. And that changed into adopted his sons through Jesus. That turned into forgiven justification, declared righteous. Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are set apart in me, in Christ, sanctified in Christ. Before faith and repentance, we were all under God's condemnation, His just wrath. Because of our sin. That's what John 3 verse 18 means. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of his, the only son of God. But when we heard the gospel of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And in hearing at some point we were miraculously called by God, what happened? Saving faith sprung up and he set us apart. In Christ, we were sanctified. All of our sins were forgiven and Christ's righteousness was imputed to us and put to our account. And at that very moment, we were brought into a personal relationship with Jesus, with the Holy Trinity. Oh, Father, I pray for them. 
because you have now given to me the right to grant eternal life. And this is eternal life, Father, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's why Paul, two times in his letters, who knows how many thousands of times in his sermons, says, you see what's happened. The very spirit of that man, that eternal being who became man, has come into you, and that's why you cry out, Abba, Papa, Father. We are brought in to this new found vision, sight, light, joy, and that's why we Christians come and come in prayer and in communion before our Heavenly Father by the power of the Spirit to our Lord and ascended Jesus. We come boldly, grasping with our minds the beauty of what we sang to be beneath the flood of His blood. It is that joy, that relationship, that knowing Him. And that's why repentance always involves a change of behavior. Not perfection, but a change from an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle and patterns, seared conscience to deeds in keeping with repentance. Verse 19 and 20, chapter 26. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. What did you declare, Paul? I declared that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's the message of the gospel, Jesus' life, and his substitutionary death, and his triumphal human resurrection into human immortality forever as the first of many of those whom the Father has given to him. That's the gospel that saves who? All those who believe. And repent from their sin. And turn to God performing deeds that are evidence of a repentant heart, life, joy. Biblical repentance is not just a change of mind. Or just an intellectual decision of agreement with what someone tells us about Jesus. It is a turning of the whole person from sin to God, from darkness to the light of his word. 
turning to the joy of obedience to God from a heart that now is alive and loves God. That's a Christian. You're a new creature in Christ, meaning you have been given a new palate that you didn't have before. You've been given new taste buds for the glory of God. New taste buds for the things of God, for the ways of God. You've been given new taste buds for the way that God has chosen to reveal who he actually is in holy scripture. And so I go back to where I began. Do you know the Lord? I didn't ask, do you know what the gospel teaches? Did you say a sinner's prayer? But do you know him? Do you love him? Which becomes evident in your desires and in your battle against your own sinful nature that is very present with you. And those desires, though, become to one degree or another manifest through your behavior. Just one more thing to notice and we're done. Paul said to King Agrippa, right there in verse 27, Agrippa is nominally Jewish. And Paul says, well, King Agrippa, do you believe the scripture? And he doesn't even let him answer. Paul answers for him. I know that you believe. Agrippa did believe. The scriptures. In an intellectual only sort of way. Like many Americans believe in Jesus. But it makes no difference in their lives. How they live. Just as Agrippa's belief made no difference in how he lived in incest with his sister, Bernice. Paul has been proclaiming to them, this is who I am and what I'm about for the last 20 odd years. And Paul is saying very clearly, therefore, to us, that his ministry was not, not about preaching for, it was never about preaching for intellectual agreement. But it was always about preaching for heart-changed repentance. He preached. God calls by the Spirit. And the evidence that if he is called that person or that person or that person. Is that their eyes are opened. So that they turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God by their faith in Christ. And so Paul preached. And so we are to preach that Jews or Gentiles, persons raised up in religiosity 
or not at all. We are to preach that they all are to repent and to turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Someone who remains in darkness, which churches are filled with them, and that's good. We want people in darkness to come to church all over this land. Well, who knows how many churches are <laughs> with people today. But if you're in Christ, this is such good news. You see, you see, and so we sing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a gift, the gift of your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for such a gift, the gift of the Spirit. Oh, what a glorious gospel. What a glorious salvation. Paul, we see your, Lord, we see what your servant Paul meant all the more when he said the gospel is the power of God to those who believe. Or another way to say it is that gospel because of God's mercy causing us to hear it and be changed is your power through this glorious work of Christ. Oh, we love to sing your praises. All honor is due to you, Lord Jesus.